Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Sometimes referred to as love for love's sake. Bhakti is one of the four yogic paths to enlightenment and the essence of spiritual perfection. Hi, I'm Bishop Heather Shea, Spiritual Director here at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts with my co-host, Reverend Dr. Jose Roman, to discover the beauty behind one of the oldest, most well-known, and often misunderstood spiritual traditions with our guest, New York Times best-selling author, His Holiness, Radhanath Swami. I think I'm going to begin in the beginning with the easiest conceivable question. What is bhakti yoga? You've got a few minutes. <laughs> I am truly honored and grateful to be with all of you today. Thank you, Reverend Jose, Dr. Heather, and Arda, and to all others who have made this event possible. The word bhakti is Sanskrit. (laughs) It means love of God. Bhakti is the love that is dormant within the heart of every living being. It is anandam buddhivaradhanam. It is the pleasure that everyone is seeking. And it's the highest potential of all beings. Things can give some amount of satisfaction to the mind and senses, but they cannot reach the heart. It is only love that gives fulfillment to the heart, to love and to be loved. And the origin of that propensity to love is the innate nature of the true self that gives life to all of us. Some call it the soul, some the spirit. In Sanskrit, jiva or atma, that living force that gives consciousness to the body. It is that me, that is seeing through the eyes and hearing through the ears and tasting through the tongue and thinking through the brain and loving through the heart. And that soul, it is a part, an eternal child of the Supreme Soul, or God, who has many names. And it is our deepest nature to feel, to experience God's love at every moment, and to love God. 
And the Srimad Bhagavatam, a great scripture of India, explains the nature of loving God. When you put water on the root of a tree, that water naturally extends to every part of the tree. The bark, the trunk, the branches, the leaves, the flowers. And similarly, when we love the Supreme, that love naturally extends to all parts of the Supreme, which means to all living beings. When we understand the sacredness of who we are, then we can appreciate and recognize the sacredness wherever there's life. But somehow or other, that bhakti or that divine love that is who we truly are has been forgotten due to endless distractions. And what is within us, we're searching outside to try to satisfy. But whatever pleasures are outside of us are dukalaya mashashvatam. They're temporary Mm -hmm. and they're limited. But the soul is looking for that love that is unlimited and forever. Yoga means to reconnect, to reunite, to link. It's a Sanskrit word. Interestingly, the origin of the word religion, religio, religio. means to bind one back, to reconnect ourselves. So actually, yoga means exactly the same thing as religion, <laughs> to reconnect to our essence. And you're saying that essence. So bhakti yoga is the path, the spiritual path that is specifically meant to awaken that bhakti that is within us, that love. In the Bible, Lord Jesus tells the first and great commandment is to love God Mm -hmm. with all your heart, all your mind, all your spirit. And the natural consequence of such loving is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And everyone's our neighbor. In the Srimad Bhagavatam, one of the great Vedic literatures, there's a beautiful verse. When I first heard this, I remember I was thinking, this is really what I'm looking for. Because when I was young, I was very confused. Mm-hmm. I was brought up in the 50s and teenager in the 60s mm-hmm. in America, and there was a lot of conflict. And there was a lot of hatred mm-hmm. in the name of a loving God. So I became an activist. I joined the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. with very close followers of the Reverend Martin Luther King. I joined the counterculture, and I was trying to make a statement in the world. But I came to a realization, unless I change myself, I can't really be an instrument of true change within the society around me. And I believed that that change was spiritual. 
But there was a problem. I saw arrogance, hatred, prejudice, apparent hypocrisy in the name of so many religions. So I either had to reject the idea of religion or I had to find something essential, universal, that was at the heart of all true spiritual paths. And of course, this verse from the Bible gave me hope that the real purpose of religion is to learn how to love God and to express it through compassion to others. And years later, when I was in India, I heard this particular verse from the Srimad Bhagavatam, which so beautifully defines bhakti yoga. And when you hear this verse, it defines that experience that is at the heart of true spirituality. Savai pung sang puro dharmo yato bhaktir dhokshaje. Ahoitiki aprati hata yayatma suprasidati. That the supreme dharma, dharma means religion, dharma means occupation, dharma means duty. The supreme dharma is that which awakens from within us love for God. Such love, in order to satisfy the heart, must be unmotivated by any selfishness, by any arrogance, and uninterrupted by any circumstance. Circumstances are always changing. Mm-hmm. But true love is not subject to circumstances. It's a reality that is so deep and so powerful that is within ourselves that nothing could change that love because it's who we are. And when it is extended into the world, it takes the form of compassion. So bhakti yoga is the spiritual a spiritual path, and it is not a sectarian idea that can be restricted to India or any other place. It's really at the heart of spirituality, the heart of religion. To live in such a way, to cultivate that seed of love, devotion, and compassion that's within our heart, That is one explanation of bhakti yoga. Not bad. (laughs) I was really hoping you'd say that. (laughs) It's one of the things, as I read The Journey Within, um, one of the things that, that kept drawing me deeper and deeper into the book was this this sense, this belief, this, this vision that the true face of the human person is this never-ending capacity for selfless love. That if you were... That that seems to be at the heart of bhakti yoga, practice and belief. That the human person is just 
living love. Is that true? Is that correct? Is that, am I getting it right? That is the nature of the soul. That is the nature of the living force. That is our true identity. And why? Because mamayvam so jiva loke jiva buddha sanatana manashashtanandriyani prakriti stani karishati the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells, every living being is part of the Supreme. And just as the sun emanates heat and light, every sun ray emanates the same heat and light because we're part of the sun. So similarly, because we're part of God, and God loves everyone. <laughs> Every living being is a child of the One Supreme. That One Supreme has many names, just like the sun itself. In Mexico, I believe the sun is called Sol. In India, Surya. In America, sun. But it's not, it's, it's an Indian sun, or an American sun, or a Mexican sun. And similarly, it's not American God, or it's, it's not a Hindu God, or Muslim God, or Christian God. All of those. God is God, the source of everything that exists, the father, the mother of everything, and everyone. And God is all beautiful. God is all loving, and we're part of that God. But somehow we're identifying ourselves as being male or female or black or white or red or yellow, or we're identifying ourselves as being from the East or the West, our nationalities, we're identifying ourselves as, as being an, a Christian or a Muslim or a Sikh or a Jain or a Parsi or a Hindu or a Buddhist or an agnostic or an atheist. We're identifying ourselves with so many designations But in truth, the spirit, the living force, is a part of God. And therefore, we have an unlimited capacity to love. And the awakening of that love, I remember my guru, Srila Prabhupada, when he first came to New York. He came on a cargo ship, 38 days. He had no money. He didn't know anyone. He just wanted to share this message. And somebody challenged him. Why have you come to our country? We have our own religions and we have our own cultures. And he said, I have not come to convert. I've come to enlighten. I've come just to remind you what you forgot. (laughs) that to feel God's love and to be an instrument of that love is the highest goal in life. And it's something that's accessible and possible for all of us to experience and to live. And you speak and write about the commonality of religions, of their different names, different ways of expressing the same thing. And you just spoke of God. Who is God? You have two minutes for that, okay? <laughs> I'll give him three. Give him three. Okay, three. three. 
<laughs> you are generous. Thank you. <laughs> in the Brahma Sutra, which in the Vedas is like the condensed summary of all the hundreds and hundreds of books that comprise the Vedas. It begins Janmadhyasya Yataha. That the supreme being, the supreme truth is from whom everything emanates. Sarvakarana karanam. God is the source of everything and everyone, the cause of all causes, and the ultimate goal for everyone to reconnect with. Yoga, religion, means to just reconnect by harmonizing our bodies, our minds, our words with our souls, and harmonizing our souls with God, and harmonizing that relationship with all living beings and all of nature. That harmony is religion. That harmony is yoga. That harmony is true spirituality. So who is God? God is our eternal, forever source, creator, father, mother, but more than that, God is the supreme object of love, and God is the supreme lover. And in that love, when that connection is made, it includes everything and everyone. In, Thank you. And I just you, you mentioned um, the Virtas and, and and can you say a little bit more about what what that is in some of the other scriptures that you refer to? The Vedas? Yeah. Vedas. Um, Vedas, yeah. The <clears throat> The Bhagavad Gita tells that the Supreme Being descends into this world again and again throughout the history of humanity for the same essential purpose, to remind us what we have forgotten, to teach the true essential universal principles of dharma, how we can reconnect with the love, the happiness, the peace that's within us, and how to live in harmony with that peace. And from the Vedic perspective, and this, this particular verse meant a lot to me too, mm-hmm. Because as I traveled through Europe and the Middle East and around India and so many parts of America, there seemed to be so many divisions in the name of religion. Indeed, absolutely. And there were so many people who really felt that they had the monopoly, and there was almost a fear that if anybody else could get what we have, then that um, jeopardizes what we have. But this verse of the Gita tells that the one supreme descends into this world again and again with the same essential message of how to reconnect to our own spiritual potential. And all the various scriptures of the world, all the various incarnations, 
and, and truly great spiritual um, founders of religion, they are all manifestation of God's love <laughs> that's coming from the same source. So the Vedas are the literatures of India that are describing in so many ways. The Vedas are a vast, like almost an ocean of literature. There are Vedas that describe um, family, domestic family values. There are Vedas that describe um, architecture, martial arts, cooking, <laughs> astrology, um, philosophy, and of course, you know, the path of true spirituality. But all these different books are all either gradually or very rapidly bringing us closer and closer to understand what is our eternal relationship with God, what is our eternal relationship with each other, and how to live within this world according to that relationship. So that's what the Vedas... Of all the Vedas, they're kind of summarized in a book called the Bhagavad Gita, which is accepted by all the different um, schools of Vedic thought as like the quintessential teaching of the Vedas in approximately 700 verses. So I think it would be appropriate to say that one of the major, if not the major, scripture that bhakti yogis look to is in fact the Bhagavad Gita. Correct? Yes. There are many different literatures Mm -hmm. that describe in great detail um, how we can take this spiritual journey in our lives. The Srimad Bhagavatam which is one of the 18 Puranas, is considered within our tradition to be the crest jewel of all the Vedas because it takes where the Bhagavad Gita kind of concludes, it begins there and describes wonderful, wonderful histories of avatars and saints who lived these pure teachings of Bhagavad Gita. In, in Western theology, there is a sense, not always fully understood, that the Abrahamic traditions are all fundamentally alluding to the same God, the one God. That the God of the Jews is the God of the Christians, is the God of the Muslims. Is God, the God, if you will, that you seek to connect to, the same God? A person recently who I was discussing this conversation with, I said, I'm going to have the privilege of sitting um, with Radha Swami. This person, this is going to sound funny, but it's not, it really wasn't, literally said, please ask him why they call God Harry. (laughs) And, and you know something, this was a fairly educated person. In fact, to be honest, she's an assistant professor at a university where I work. And she wanted to know why you call God Harry. And I went through this whole conversation trying to explain. But I realized that there was this sense in this individual, those folks worship a different God. 
How would you respond to this individual who's most probably watching us right now online and who sincere want, sincerely wants to know? Is that the same God that I worship as someone who's part of the Abrahamic tradition? Yes, same. <laughs> okay, next question. And the next question is... <laughs> And, same and, God, same and, and who is Rama? Harry and Rama. Right. Rama. And, and it's fascinating. People really, they'll hear Harry Krishna, Harry Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Harry Harry, Harry Rama, Harry Rama, Rama Rama, Harry Harry. And they think that it's these are, this is something very, very esoteric that doesn't necessarily speak to anything they can relate to. That's not necessarily the case if they understood the meaning of each of these words. So... There have been many occasions in my life where I have been challenged, <laughs> but I'll refer to one. It was in America, a very powerful preacher of a particular religion really attacked me in front of so many people I read it. and said, you are worshiping a false god. Mm -hmm. And I said, how do you know I'm worshipping a false god? He said, because you worship Krishna. I said, do you know what Krishna means? He said, yes, a false god. So I asked him, is your god all beautiful? He said, yes, of course. Is your god all powerful? Is he all knowing? Is he the proprietor of everything that exists. Is he the most famous of all people? Is he full of kindness and love? He said, yes, of course. I said, oh, that means your God is Krishna. <laughs> because the Sanskrit name Krishna means all beautiful, all attractive. I asked him, is your God all attractive? He said, yes. I said, so why do you not like to call him all attractive? The name Krishna means all attractive. Mm -hmm. There are so many names of God. There are so many names that we have. You know, some people call me Swami. Some people call me Radhanath. My parents, they call me Richie. <laughs> they still do. <laughs> they get mixed up sometimes. <laughs> and some people who don't like me call me so many names. <laughs> but I'm the same person. Hi, I'm Bishop Heather Shea, Spiritual Director at the United Palace. We'll return in a minute with Radna Swami in this program. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Thank you for joining us. We return now to our conversation of the Bhakti tradition. So God has many names. 
And we should, it's, it's important we understand, well, what does this mean? This is the Sanskrit language. These scriptures were written thousands and thousands of years ago, and it's describing that nam nam akadhi bahuta nijasaravashaktis, that the one supreme truth has many, many names, but that, that one supreme truth is present in all of these names when they are chanted sincerely. We can make a connection. Krishna means all attractive. Supremely beautiful, supremely loving, supremely lovable. That's a beautiful name of God. And Hari, Hari, it's not Harry, it's Hari. (laughs) Hari means two things. Hari means one who steals away from us all inauspicious things, all sufferings, all miseries, and all fears by attracting us to, to our own divine nature. And Hari, Hara is the name of the feminine aspect of the one supreme divine because in the Vedic literatures it describes God as both feminine and masculine. They're different aspects of the one supreme being. The feminine aspect is the motherly, nurturing, compassionate nature of God. And when we call out to find shelter in Hara, or the feminine divine, we chat Hare. So Hare is calling out like a little baby (laughs) in a most desperate condition calling out for mother. We call Hare. Mother, I'm calling for you. How may I serve you? How may I please you? How may I find shelter in that loving service? And Rama? Rama Rama means pleasure. It means the supreme reservoir or source of the highest pleasure. God is a supreme source of all pleasure. And therefore, Rama is a very nice name. Indeed. So it's the one and the same God. One and the same God. But and that I, one and same God can appear in many different ways according to, um, according to how showing compassion in the journey home, I write one little story. I was living on the bank of the Ganges in a place called Patna, in the Bihar state of India. And there was one man, he was about 85 years old. And he was a retired government officer who was coming to be with his guru, who I was living with, mm-hmm. in, a, in a little tiny temple. And every day he, he would speak to me, because he was the only one around who spoke English. And every day at noon, he would take me to meet his best friend. His best friend was named Muhammad. This man's name was Narayan Prasad. And we went to the Magadha X-ray clinic. And at at lunchtime, he would close the X-ray clinic, this man. And his friend was a Muslim. And his friend would speak from the Quran 
he would speak from Bhagavad Gita, Narayan, or from the um, Bhag- or from the Ramayan, and I would speak whatever I was learning. And one day I asked him, I've seen in India there's a lot of tension and conflict between Hindu and Muslims. How is it that the two of you, a Hindu and a Muslim, are very best of friends? And you can openly share your scriptures with each other. And even if you have some apparent disagreement, you resolve it with so much affection. I'll never forget his reply. He said, if a dog has a master, the dog will recognize his master in whatever his master is wearing. Sometimes the master is in tuxedo. Sometimes the master is in regular working clothes. Sometimes the master is in underwear. Sometimes the master is not wearing anything. But the dog will recognize because the dog loves the master. If we cannot recognize our God, the God we love, when he appears to other people in another way, then we have so much to learn from the dogs. When we truly love God, I believe, and I have learned from so many saints and scriptures, when we truly love God, we can recognize and appreciate how God is appearing to other people in different ways, with different traditions, in different languages, in different forms throughout human history, teaching us that same love, that same compassion. Another word that I hear people asking about and that you write about is karma. What is karma? (laughs) Take three and a half minutes for that. (laughs) Karma. In one instance... It means action. And then there's another instance, the law of karma. Karma yoga means connecting with God by performing our actions according to our nature in a dutiful way in harmony with spiritual principles of ethics, morality, and devotion. That's karma yoga. The law of karma is a universal law, like the law of gravity. What goes up must come down. Whether you believe it or not, it's going to happen. Um, in the Bible, it is said, as ye sow, so shall, so shall ye reap. That's a law of nature. Or as they say in the streets of New York, what goes around comes around. <laughs> so the law of karma teaches the spirit that we as human beings are responsible for whatever we do and whatever we speak. We're especially responsible by how we treat others, how we treat other human beings, how we treat other beings of other species, and how we treat the environment. We have a responsibility. And according to each and every word and and act, there will be 
a corresponding reaction that comes in our own life. And karma is both individual and collective. So, so it, which takes us back to this idea, in bhakti yoga, you are cultivating love. You keep, you cultivate as much love as you can in yourself, in the world, and so therefore your, your life becomes, if you will, this massive garden of love. And yet that's not the way we live our lives. Not here in New York, and frankly not here in the world. It seems, in spite of the overwhelming powerful draw that we have to love and be loved, we, we hand ourselves over to something very different. And I know this is something, Heather, that you've been particularly interested in, that inner struggle. And I'll leave you to speak to it and ask the question. You know, I think it's important. What goes around comes around. Uh, a lot of what I hear, especially now with the news and everything else going on, is this fear. There's a lot of fear. And so, and more and more growing fear, and more of it's being fed by the media and things that are going on with climate change and the environment. And what's even more frightening, if, if I look at it as karma and I'm creating this for myself, is even more frightening. So, so chat a little bit about fear and, and how bhakti yoga uh, addresses fear and, and works with fear. We really have the opportunity to learn to see everything in this world from a positive perspective of how we can make a positive difference and how we could grow. The idea of karma is not just to make us guilty, it's, it's, make a, it's to inspire us to take responsibility. And when we take responsibility, we could actually grow, we could actually make positive change in our own lives and in the world. So fear is due to a disconnection from that light that is within us. It's like, what is darkness? Darkness really is not its own substance. It's the absence of light. Light is substance. And if you look toward the sun, you see light. And if you look away from the sun, you see a shadow. So, avidya, which is a Sanskrit word which means disconnection or ignorance, means that this darkness or this fear comes when we are disconnected from the light of our true self and the light of God's love, which is actually everywhere. And when we understand that the soul is beyond death, the soul is eternal. The difference between a living body and a dead body is that soul is no longer there in a dead body. When the soul is there, you know, our whole life, the body lights up. So, nahanyate hanyamane sadide. The basic cause of fear is inevitable death. And the and fear is due to suffer, the the apprehension of suffering. When we 
gradually come in contact with the peace, the happiness, the light that's within ourselves, then we actually become free from fear. There's no material solution to fear. When we're enlightened, when we're turning away from the darkness of forgetfulness of who we are, um, when we understand that God is ever-present, even if this body falls, which eventually it will, we have complete trust and faith. And not only that, we have the potential to have direct experience of our eternal relationship with God, of God's eternal love for us, then we actually become free from fear. So cultivate that inner light. To to the degree we're living in a mood of disconnection from our own nature, then there's inevitably going to be fear. I think it's in your book, The Journey Within. You give this magnificent story or, or, or analogy, you talk about us having two dogs in a sense inside us, right? This is a myth. One dog is this beautiful, loving, gentle soul, and the other is this monstrous, hungry animal. And in a sense, what you say is, bhakti yoga is cultivating that gentle, loving dog, right? Yet, and the more you do that, that dog gets power, and the other dog, in a sense, although you never say this in the book, which I think is interesting, this is me assuming that other dog dies, Carl Jung would say that's not what happens. Carl Jung and many, many, many today would say what happens is that that dog that you don't feed, the aggressive dog, the shadow dog, goes and sits inside a cave somewhere and becomes the shadow. And just when you least expect it, when that hungry, rabid dog finally sees something he or she can feed on, they come out and they lurch. And hence, all of the scandals that you see in religious and spiritual organizations and all the horrors you see in our life. Because the shadow is always there. It never dies. You don't believe that. You think the shadow, that shadow is in a sense our own illusion. That shadow can be transcended. The shadow can die. Or am I wrong? That shadow is a product of ahankar, or the false ego. The real ego is I'm an eternal loving servant of the Supreme Person. (laughs) That's the real ego. And the false ego is I'm the enjoyer, I'm the controller, and I'm the proprietor. And there are so many different uh, ways of experiencing life in between those two. So it is true until we actually um, reach that highly enlightened state, we are vulnerable for that bad dog (laughs) to come back and and redirect us, confuse us with greed, anger, arrogance, envy, selfishness. These are the qualities of that darkness. 
So that is a reason why it's so important when we're on a spiritual path to always remember what our goal is because there will be endless distractions both from within ourselves and all around us. And sometimes I'm in a car and there's a GPS. When you type in the address you're trying to reach, like if you try type in the United Palace on Broadway in New York City, then it will... I know this is what happened when I came here today. <laughs> in 500 yards, turn right. Yes? At the end of this block, turn right. In 50 feet, turn right. Turn right. And then you keep going. Yes, because you're distracted. Or because somebody is you know, blocking the way to turn right. And then... You hear the voice say, recalibrating. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, if you want the GPS to work properly, you have to type in the right destination. So what is the actual goal of religion? The goal of religion is not to become wealthy or powerful. It's to become... The goal of religion is transformation. The meek shall inherit the earth, not the arrogant. To transform arrogance into humility, greed into generosity, complacency into compassion, hate into love, turbulence of the mind to peace of mind. This is the purpose of religion. This is the goal. To actually live in harmony with the sweet will of the Supreme. What happens in... in Religion, all too often, is we forget the actual goal. We get caught up in all kinds of politics. We get caught up in our own ego. And instead of becoming detached and selfless, we become attached and selfish. What is the Bible says? Judge not lest ye be judged. But you know, when we start learning all kinds of philosophies and we think, and we have followers and influence, then we think, now I'm the judge. Well, that means we're simply being distracted. That's the bad dog. Right. Because you see, the bad dog can put on a disguise to look just like the good dog. <laughs> And we actually think we're feeding the good dog, but we're feeding the bad dog. So for that reason, we, we need association of people, of sincere people, who can you know, help us to remain focused, to keep our GPS. And whenever we make a mistake or we're distracted, we recalibrate and go forward. So yes, that bad dog remains. It remains in a dormant state, but it could come out any time until we actually reach that truly enlightened state. Fascinating. Thank you. And I have a- but until then, it's very important that we must be diligent. We must be careful. We have to have you know, good company to keep us strong. In our tradition, we have um, four principles that we hold very sacred. One is satsang. Satsang means to associate with people 
who enlighten us, who um, are like-minded and help just like in the Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics mm-hmm. Anonymous. People come together because they know their weaknesses. They know those bad dogs are there. And they help each other to remain focused on where they really want to go. So spirituality is really... It's necessary to associate with saintly people or people who are striving to be saintly, to keep us um, in the right direction. The second is sadhana. That when we have faith that there is a higher purpose, then we put some quality time aside every day to cultivate our own internal spirituality. Just like in order to be strong in our work or in our domestic duties, we have to sleep and we have to eat. Spiritually, we need to feed our spirit too. And that comes through a spiritual practice, through our prayers. The purpose of all rituals, when we don't just get caught up with the ritual itself, if we understand its purpose, it's a meditation. It's a meditation on serving the divine and offering ourself in in a spirit of loving surrender to the divine. And especially in our tradition, chanting God's names is a way we can purify ourselves and remain connected in the grace of God. So to put some time aside every day to cultivate our spirituality through our meditational processes Mm -hmm. is very important. And then sadachar. With the association we keep, that directs us in an enlightening way with the spiritual practice to actually give us strength, then we go into the world and we choose to live with character. We choose to live with integrity. We choose to live in such a way that we're in harmony with our purpose in our life. Temptations will come, Mm -hmm. but we will not we will not compromise our sacred ideals, even when we can get so much more by compromising. Or even in the fear that we'll lose so much if we don't compromise, we embrace our ideals. And that is a fulfilling, meaningful, and spiritual life to live with character. And that's the greatest need in the world. In today's world, people are duped with all these misconceptions. What is the use of a great economy if people are greedy and, and hateful mm-hmm. <laughs> and immoral? You know, the economy will naturally be better if people live with character and compassion. So each and every one of us to take a responsibility, either in a big way or in a little way, to be a leader with integrity and character. Because it's the most important thing for human society, is the values that we inculcate within ourselves and the values that we leave as a legacy for our children and future generations. And when we have that association, satsang, spiritual practice, sadhana, and it gives us the strength to live with values, character, sadachar, then seva. 
then we realize the greatest joy of life is to serve with love in whatever we're doing. Whether we're a politician, whether we're a swami or a reverend, whether we're teachers or industrialists, engineers, farmers, mothers, fathers, whatever our particular role in society is, the joy is to perform our duties in a mood of service to God and service to others. That's where joy is. That's where happiness is. That's where light is. And that's where we could really find hope and give hope to others. What are some of your holidays? Or do you have some specific holidays? <laughs> I get to ask. I get to be the straight man on this and ask these questions. You, you get these intellectual questions. I go for them. <laughs> no, that's you know? <laughs> We have so many holidays. <laughs> we have calendars, and every every few days or some holiday. <laughs> but whatever the holiday may be, you know, it may be the the birthday of a saint in our tradition, or it may be the birthday of a saint in another tradition. <laughs> it may be the day of the disappearance of a saint. Or a great enlightened person. Um, it may be the appearance of various avatars that come to this world. So the the beauty of holidays is similar to the beauty of a pilgrimage. It's a time to really reflect on what this person or what this event really means to me. Which really means it's a day to really focus on what's the most important thing in our life, which is to reconnect with God's grace, to reconnect with our own true self. You have been listening to our series, Open Heart Conversations, offering dialogues from around the world's religions and spiritual traditions, recorded here at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. Please come visit us in Manhattan or online at upspiritualarts.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. 